Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to chasing the swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Well, hello, folks. I feel like I need to turn my twang on extra thick today because, y'all, I have an amazing guest. I am pleased to introduce everyone in the world to Dr. Missy Schrader, PhD, CCC, SLP, comma, C-A-L-T-Q-I, comma, C-L-S-D-S. I got no clue what they mean, but she'll explain it. And she is the director of the DeBard School for Language Disorders at the University of Southern Mississippi, which is a special public school for students with significant communication disorders. Also, I have it on good information that she is the current president of the MISHA Association, which is the Mississippi Speech Language Hearing Association. Y'all, I had the pleasure of meeting Missy last fall when I was out there. I'm honest, Mississippi throws one 
fantastic state convention. There was live music, a DJ, and killer drinks. So if you want joy, nerdiness, and a fair bit of after-hour SLP joy, please hit up Flowood, Mississippi, uh, because again, that does sound very Southern, but Flowood, Mississippi, September 21st to the 23rd this year for their annual convention, because your cup will be filled in more than one ways, but most importantly, the nerdy SLP style. So Dr. Missy, thank you for coming on. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. I'm so excited to be here. This is my very first podcast to record. So it's a new adventure and I'm excited to join you today. Well, thank you. This is seriously, I had the best time last fall and (laughs) I had never heard of the DeBard School and you and I ended up sitting down. I think it was at like the open house night where they had like giveaways and drawings right. and you were telling me about the DeBard School and I had never heard of this. And actually last week I had the pleasure of recording Angie Neal, who's the South Carolina Department of Ed SLP. And she was talking about the nationwide literacy levels and she blew my mind because she said, Mississippi has the highest growth rate for literacy acquisition. And she was explaining something. And honest to goodness, it sounded just like what you were telling me about the DeBard School. And I was like, wait, Mississippi does? And she was like, yes, I ma'am, know, Mississippi. Right? <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> so, and I thought it was just like the home of cornbread because y'all had that killer restaurant next door that had the really good seafood with all the cornbread. <laughs> so, like, See, there are a yes. lot of hidden treasures in Mississippi. There are, and the people are fabulous. So talk to me first about what does all your acronyms mean? Because that's a lot. I kind of have a strange educational history. I have an undergraduate degree in biology. And then as an adult student, you know, you like it when you go to your advisor and they say, I have an adult student in my office, which means you're you're older than most when you go back and get your master's degree. <laughs> I mean, I was still only like 25. So I got my master's degree in speech language pathology. I practiced for a couple of years in that, well, for quite a long time in that. And then just a few mere years ago, I decided to go back and get my PhD. And my PhD is in educational administration. And so that helps me between the speech path background and the educational administration helps me in my director job here at the DeBard School. So, okay. So CCCSLP, of course, that's my clinical competence from American Speech Language Hearing Association. The CALT-QI is a certified academic language therapist, qualified instructor. And CALT is the acronym for those therapists who meet the regulations of the Academic Language Therapy Association, which is the association that certifies people to treat children and adults with dyslexia. So I'm an instructor in the DeBard Association method. And then I'm also Siri certified as a structured literacy dyslexia specialist. So that's what all my letters mean. This is amazing. Where did you get your PhD from? I got it from Southern Miss, the University of Southern Mississippi. Mm -hmm. So I was able to do it part-time while I was working. So that was good. And it's even better that it's over. So <laughs> I'm glad I did it, but I'm glad I'm not just starting it out. You know, it's one of those things. I'm torn with going back and I'm torn between a master's in public health and then a doctorate in health administration or because I don't want to be a professor full time. So I don't think PhD in speech is my calling. But so whenever somebody has a PhD in something different, I'm like, tell me why. Yeah, <laughs> tell so- me more. Yes. Well, that's awesome. Okay. So... Can you talk to us about the founding of the DeBard School and what its purpose is? Okay, so the DeBard School, we were founded on the campus of the University of Southern Mississippi in 1962, which means we are 60 years old this year. So we've got a big 60th celebration happening over the the spring and the fall. But Dr. Etoll DuBard, she came to campus because, first of all, she had studied under Mildred McGinnis at the Central Institute for the Deaf. She was one of Mississippi's first speech correctionists, which was the speech path name in those days. And so she went and studied with Mildred McGinnis at the Central Institute for the Deaf, and she learned this methodology that helped students who were deaf but didn't learn in a a traditional manner, helped them 
be able to acquire speech and language. There's a good backstory on this. Mildred McGinnis, when she was working at Central Institute for the Deaf, she had, you know, of course, students who were deaf. And some of her students she knew were just learning in a typical manner. Like you would expect a child who is deaf, maybe some language delays, but acquisition in an appropriate manner based on the hearing loss. And then she had another group of students who maybe didn't even have as severe of a loss, but were not learning language as would be expected. Okay. She was confused by that. In those same days, she was treating war veterans who had had brain injuries and had aphasia. And she noticed that those soldiers with aphasia and her children who weren't learning in the same way had the same characteristics. They were not learning in the same manner as you would typically expect. And so she kind of deduced that these children had aphasia. Now we don't really say the children have aphasia if it's a developmental disorder. We basically say it's a significant language disorder. And so she modified what she did with these children that allowed them to acquire speech and language. So that is what became the DuBard Association method. So Dr. DuBard came to Southern Miss. We had a professor here on campus whose child had suffered a very high fever. And when he recovered from his illness, he had lost his hearing and most of his language. And so they wanted to keep the professor here on campus, but they needed to teach his child. So they hired Dr. DuBard. She started with three children in this area, which are pretty amazing that three children had the same type of illness and the same type of problems. She started teaching them in a full-time school program. Over the next 60 years, we have grown to 80 children in our full-time program. These children come to us from about 20 different school districts in the area. Children who are enrolled with us have an eligibility ruling from the state of Mississippi in some area that affects their communication. We have those children who have severe speech disorders. We have children who have receptive and expressive language disorders. We have some children with autism. We have children who are deaf or hard of hearing. Those children who are deaf, their families have chosen for them to be in an oral program. So we don't sign with our children. Instead, they wear hearing aids or cochlear implants and we're teaching them how to talk. And most of our children have more than one thing going on. As you know, we don't have a lot of children who have just speech or just language. So on average, our children have about seven different diagnoses. Some of our children are on that written language part of the language disorder. So those are the children who have those dyslexic tendencies. So when you talk to them, their oral communication seems okay, but their reading and writing skills, their spelling skills are very impaired. And so we're able to see them all day, every day. Our children are grouped into eight different classrooms. Their full-time teacher is a certified speech-language pathologist. We also have a teacher assistant in the classroom with them. And I talk about it as, okay, we're in the classrooms, but in that one classroom of eight to ten children, you may have four different groups going on at one time. And so it's really all-day therapy for these kiddos who come to us and our school looks different than a traditional elementary school. First period, we're doing language, speech, reading. Second period, we're doing language, speech, and reading. And third period, we're doing math. Okay, so our day's kind of broken into, you know, in the morning, late morning, and then after lunch. And so our children are working on those state standards for the college and career readiness standards, but we're addressing them in different ways. So rather than the children going to science class, they're going to do a language unit on a science topic. Children are non-graded and non-grade leveled. So non-graded. What does that mean? They're non-graded, so they don't get A's, B's, C's. Instead, we send home their progress on their IEP goals. And they're non-grade leveled. So they're not in first grade or second grade. They're in Lawrence class or Taurus class. That takes away pressure. Yes. We have it. Uh, the advantage I see is that we don't have to follow that school pacing guide. We are able to meet that child where his needs are. So <laughs> if a child takes five days to learn two words, 
we're going to give him five days and not say, oh, well, let's move on. And I'll talk about the method here in just a little bit and kind of explain some of that. Our children are able to work at their own paces. And so in that classroom, they're going to be working in in small groups with the speech therapist, with the trained assistant, and get a lot of that intensive intervention all day, every day. Children start with us as young as three. By the time they're 12 or 13, they either have returned to their local school district because they're ready to have their needs met in their district or they're going back to their school district because they need some different type of programming. Do they live there? Is it residential? Like, do they live at the DeBard School or how do they get there? Their parents drive them. So because we serve such a wide area, we don't run the bus, but instead our, our parents receive a transportation reimbursement. But we have some parents who drive an hour and a half every day, one way to bring their children to school. Most of our children are from the Hattiesburg area, but we have a lot who drive quite a while every day. It's really amazing how much sacrifice those families make to get their children here with us. Yeah. So this is how you're leading the nation and literally reshaping literacy and language acquisition. I mean, that's huge and profound. Mississippi has done a really good job. They've done a lot of push on letters training with all of the school districts. And so our state has really, I've been real proud that we've really seen some good improvement. One of the things that we also do at the DeBard School is we do professional development in the DeBard Association method. So we go and teach other professionals how, how basically how to do what we do with these children. Can other folks contract y'all out for their state association conferences? Would it be like a short course or would it be like a two or three day intensive? Well, we do several different types of professional development. We can do an overview of the method or if we're doing a method class where individuals are learning how to implement the DeBard Association method, that's a 45-hour course. It is, I always like to hear, give my big words. So when we talk about the method, my big spiel is, it's our phonetic multi-sensory structured language program. I don't think I could say those words, much less understand. I know. Say that again. The phonetic what? A phonetic multi-sensory structured language program. So what that means is when we're teaching our children speech and language, okay, it's phonetics. So we're teaching sound symbol relationship. It's multi-sensory. So we're using all of those avenues of learning to get the information in. And when we talk about multisensory, we talk more about the multisensory aspects of the speech sounds. So mm-hmm. rather than just like, you know, you're writing on a sandpaper or something, which is a multisensory activity. Sometimes when you talk about multisensory, you talk about, oh, using manipulatives or like doing handwriting practice on sandpaper. Those are activities that can be done. But when we talk about multisensory, we're talking about the multisensory aspects of the speech sound. So what does it look like? So if you think about saying the sound ow, you know, if you think about watching somebody say that, what happens? Their mouth opens and closes. So you hear it. Okay. So what sound, you know, of course it sounds like ow, but also you think about the kinesthetic movement. So when you say Mm -hmm. the sound ow, you feel what happens in your mouth. You open it up and then you close it. And then any kind of tactile, ow, if you're feeling on your throat when you say ow, your voice is going to vibrate because it's a voiced sound. We use those types of things to help our students grab hold of that speech sound and get it into their memory. I got to finish talking about my phonetic multisensory. Okay, so it's phonetic, it's multisensory, it's very structured. So we're going to start at the beginning of language with those individual speech sounds, and we are going to move very incrementally and very, you know, structuredly. I don't know if structuredly is even a word, but move very incrementally <laughs> You're fine. That's right, incrementally <laughs> into syllables and then words and longer words and sentences and corresponding questions into longer and longer units of language until they're able to handle 
traditional language. And then it is all language based. So everything that we talk about has the language attached to it. Because we think about the basis of the DeBard Association method were those children who had aphasia. So adding the language component has been really helpful for our students because it allows them to hold on to something. So teaching them the language, you know, as you know, language is an interesting thing. When you have it, you don't even realize what a great gift it is. And we take for granted how much we understand and how easy it is for most of us. And then you see these children and they don't have any way of organizing and expressing language. So we have to give that to them. Do you guys incorporate any AAC into the school? We do not. We have, for the families that choose to send their children here, they want them to learn how to be spoken language people. So. Okay. I was just curious because, oh my God, we need to replicate this. Let me talk a little bit about the method now. So so the DeBart Association method, as we said, we start teaching at the level of the individual phoneme. So the children, they learn their speech sounds. Okay. One of the things that's different about the DeBart Association method is we use the Northampton symbols, which is a symbol system that closely corresponds to written English. As a speech path, you learned IPA. Well, you know, IPA aren't real letters. <laughs> you you say that to the swallowing person who hasn't used IPA in like literally since grad school. So like, yes, but I know what you're talking about. <laughs> I mean, talk about to the Northampton person. I don't use IPA because I can transcribe in Northampton and use real letters and it, it's amazing. Yes. But the Northampton symbols, those like the letter together, O-O. What does OO say? It says ooh or it says uh. Well, how do you know what it says? Because you have language and can recognize what a real word is. But for many of our children, if you see the word B-O-O-T, we know it's boot. But why is it not but? Because but isn't a real word, right? Okay, so in Northampton, we help them. Remember, we talk about it being structured. Northampton symbols uses ones and twos. So O-O with a one written over it says ooh. So the child doesn't have to guess. Is B-O-O-T, is that boot or boot? Oh, it's got a one on it. It's ooh. O-O with a two says uh. Okay. Another example there, like an S. An S is voiced or voiceless. Okay. Well, how Mm -hmm. do you know? Because you have intact language, you know which one to use. Well, for our children who have language problems or those who maybe have a high frequency hearing loss and don't hear it. An S with a one over it says like in C, but an S with a two over it says like in is. Okay. So it's kind of cool. I was like, that was one of the the things that when I first learned it, I thought, oh, that's so fun. It's so cool. (laughs) Now you just do it. And then as the children gain skills, they fade those out. So they're not leaving here using ones and twos on everything. But it gives them a tool to have some some predictability in their language. I just had a thought, like, one, our boys are in a Mandarin immersion program. So half their day is taught in Mandarin. And they're freaking brilliant. It's not lost on me how smart my kids are. But like math, science, and Mandarin are taught in Mandarin. And both kids have like hundreds in it, right? But my oldest is struggling with spelling. He's reading above grade level. I don't know how, but he missed all that phonological awareness stuff because of COVID. And honestly, after I recorded Angie, I was like, and you're going back to speech therapy. And we talked about it after I recorded Angie and after, you know, we got the referral in place. And he goes, mom, Mandarin's easier to learn because they're teaching me the tones and they're teaching me. They're literally breaking down the phonological awareness of Mm -hmm. Mandarin. And in English, they assumed that he had that, but he didn't because of COVID. Oh, yeah. But we're going back. And now I'm like, also just general curiosity, the C, when it makes the S sound versus when it makes the K sound, which is the one and which is the two? Because my thought, okay, I just so was kind of curious. Not everything has a one and a two. Sorry. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay, wait. Now you But you do ball. have, well, like a C. Another okay. thing about the Northampton symbols is they're divided into primary and secondary spellings. So the S sound, S with a one, is S. But then they also learn that C-E, C-I, and C-Y say S because there's that rule that mm-hmm. C followed by E-I-Y says S. And so we have primary and secondary spellings for those. And then we use the ones and twos. And it's just, it. this is where I need the whiteboard so I can do my demonstration. So y'all have to... <laughs> 
decide, just pretend that you can see this. It helps the children learn that more predictability of this is when I see that C, if there's an E following it, it's going to say S instead of the K, instead of the K sound. Because, of course, you know, there's lots of rules for spelling and all of that. But when you don't have language skills, oh, when the E follows the C, it says the soft sound. That doesn't mean anything to our children. Mm-hmm. So another mm-hmm. thing that we do with Northampton is we don't teach their letter names at the beginning. For a child who has language learning problems, I'm going to show them the letter B and I'm going to teach them. I'm going to teach them the letter B and I'm going to show them the written symbol and I'm going to say B. I'm not going to say B because B doesn't really mean anything. B is the label we give it and we teach it later. But again, for a child to know that the word bat, they need to know B, A, and T. B-A-T doesn't really mean anything if you don't have the language that goes along with it. So that's something that's different about the DeBart Association method. We also teach, our even our little ones, we teach in cursive. So cursive writing has a lot of benefits. You know, your B's and your P's and your D's, they're not so confusing. Motorically, cursive writing flows better. You don't you know, it's like, where do you start? Do you start on the line? Do you start at two o'clock? Do you start? Everything starts on the line and you write in cursive. Also helps us with our word spacing, because we know Mm -hmm. if you're reading something in print, you know where the, the word boundaries are. Some of our children don't know that, but in cursive, those words are connected. So it's easier to see. So you said word boundaries and I'm visualizing the word boundaries. And I was like, no, 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 wait, she's talking about the spacing between yes, the, the words. Spacing Keep between up, the right? words. <laughs> yes, yes, but like, spacing again, between the words. Not, this is how you know I don't treat language or literacy. <laughs> We're fine. It's fine. <laughs> so well, I don't treat swallowing and feeding. So we are even here. <laughs> at every level. So starting at the level of phoning, the child learns how to say it. So if I teach the sound B, he says it, he reads it, he learns how to read it in cursive, he learns how to write it as motorically able as he is, and he learns how to listen to it. So we, you know, so the child, not only is he just seeing their sound and saying B, I say B, he has to come up with the symbol and write it. You know, I'll like stand behind him and give him some phonemes out there and say, but, and he has to find it and pick it for me. So we're learning all of those skills using this method. So they're reading it, they're listening to it. We're using correct articulation or as correct as possible, shaping it towards better artic. So it's amazing that even with starting just at phonemes, even our three-year-olds, they're learning to read those sounds. So That's really where a lot of the literacy part comes in because we are directly and specifically teaching them that sound symbol association that they need for reading. We're training that auditory system. I don't know about you, but since COVID and everybody wears a mask, I can't understand what anybody says. (laughs) You know, I'm like, I need you to take your mask down so I can see what you're saying. You know, I need that visual cue. I blame the concerts I went to in my youth, which wasn't that long ago, but dang, but it was. But I mean, my <laughs> my hearing is fine, but my auditory input, I never learned to put a lot of attention on there. And so, I mean, it's fine, but I can pay a whole lot better attention, get a whole lot out of it if I can see the speaker's face. So if yes. I can, if I can do that lip reading, I mean, I'm not deaf, but I'm, you know, I'm still... I'm doing lots of lip reading. Yes. So we teach our children to do that, to see what does it look like? We teach them to listen for it and to discriminate from other sounds. So all of those skills that they're learning, then they move into putting two sounds together. You know, some of our children, especially those children with severe speech, we might can get might can get, there's a good Southern expression for you. We might put, we might can you do it, but we might can get two sounds or one sound in isolation. But when you start putting it with another sound, it disintegrates. And so we, again, incrementally work on getting two speech sounds together. And then we move into longer words. When they get to the word level, they have to, first of all, we start teaching with nouns and pure association method because 
nouns are much more concrete. You know, at is a good, easy word to say and write and spell, but at is hard to understand what it means. So we start with, a, you know, like a bee or a car or a cat. And so they learn the spelling of the word. They learn the speech of the word. They identify it auditorily. They're writing it. And so we're working on all of those skills from the very beginning. So even for a child who comes and just works on with with severe artic, it's amazing. All of a sudden they've learned how to read. <laughs> it's like, okay, it's really yes. not amazing. It was designed to help that way. But when you're seeing that, the you're seeing the written with everything, every almost everything the teacher says, she's gonna have it written somewhere. So she's gonna talk about a language lesson. She's gonna have the sentences on the board, and she's going to show the words that she's saying. She's going to, you know, demonstrate the language, have the pictures to go with it. So it's a really neat methodology. It's appropriate for children who have those significant oral language problems, but it's also appropriate for those children who have dyslexia who might have some of those subtle oral language issues as well. Okay, so I have a couple of thoughts, but I'll keep those for afterwards because I have a big idea to like how to disseminate this on like a large this information on a larger scale but we'll sidebar that at the end but I want to know what this looks like with a tiny human okay can you walk me through because that's like a clinical case study but like I'm pretty sure you have a good one (laughs) all right so first of all to enroll in the DeBar school unfortunately we have a waiting list And so let me tell you the story about Avery. Avery, she, after much coercion, her family brought her in to be tested and found out that she had a very severe speech disorder and some language issues. This is a child who could talk, but didn't like to talk because she knew people couldn't understand her. I think about her. She kept her eyes closed on her third birthday so she would be invisible, that type of child, because she didn't want people to talk to her because If she talked back, she knew that they would not understand. So after a year and a half on the waiting list, Avery enrolled with us. So again, we started teaching her the speech, the reading, the writing, all of those skills using the DeBard Association method. Within just a few months, her little personality was coming out. She was willing to talk to people. She was, her speech was coming along, her reading was coming along, and she stayed with us three years. At the end of three years, she transitioned back to her local school district on grade level in second grade. She's in third grade now, and she is doing beautifully. The reason I like Avery's story is Avery's my granddaughter. That's why I giggled when you said coercion. Yes, yeah. I finally said, son, it is time to take her to get tested, because of course, So many times our children with severe speech, you know, the pediatrician saying, oh, she'll outgrow it. Oh, it's fine. Oh, it's Mm -hmm. fine. Oh, it's so cute. Well, you know, I finally said, who has been the speech pathologist for more than 20 years? It is time. And so they brought her in and got her tested and her articulation was unintelligible and she had some subtle language issues. And so just watching her, I remember She had started with us in August. That spring, we went to her brother's baseball game. And so she went down. She wanted to go to the concession stand. Of course, she was four at the time. And the concession stand was like 10 feet away. So we didn't let her go a long way. But she went back and she came back. She had a Diet Coke and some peanut M&Ms. And she told her mom, I need some money. She said, why? I ordered nachos. And, you know, that doesn't sound like a big deal for a four-year-old, but knowing six months earlier, she never would have done it. And that she went, she got those items by herself and the people understood her. It brought tears to my eyes. It's like the fact that she was willing to communicate, knowing that she was confident that she could communicate, people could understand her and she wanted to do that. And of course, she got M&Ms to go with it and some nachos, but That was such a huge deal for her that she actually went and talked to somebody outside of the family voluntarily, and that person understood her. So now she's back in school. She's in third grade. We never got the R fixed. She still kind of has, she still has that vocalic R that she's getting some speech therapy for. 
but she was with us for three years and she's on grade level. She's reading above grade level. Her language skills are very normal and she's doing beautifully. I'm so proud of her and seeing the little personality that's out. She's an old sassy girl now. (laughs) She's not afraid to tell her mind. You know, she's not afraid to stand up for herself. And I think that's such a big thing. I tell people for 20 years, I knew we did a good job at the Jabari School. And then when Avery enrolled, now I really know we do a good job because I was able to see the difference that that type of intervention made for her, but for the family as well, because it allowed us to enjoy her and allowed her to participate in our family when before she would not have. And I mean, our schools do an excellent job. They really do. But they don't have the capability of seeing her for five and a half hours a day with a speech pathologist like we do. Mm-hmm. So I, I was real pleased. Yeah, I also loved when Avery was here because I'd walk in her class and all of the kids would say, hey, Gigi. And she'd look at them, <laughs> that is my Gigi. You need to call her Missy. <laughs> so so I loved having our Avery here. But again, too, with Avery, you know, hers was the oral language issue in the speech, but it was amazing how quickly her reading came along. And that's another thing that I love about the DeBard Association Method and what we do here at the DeBard School is that not only we're addressing the language, but we're addressing the reading as well. So we're teaching those children those phonological awareness skills. We're teaching them those direct sound symbol associations. And then as they become older and become more competent in their language, we do those things that our children with dyslexia need, like syllable division and identifying syllable types and learning how the morphemes work with words and how that spelling works. And so it's just really a neat way to address language, both oral and written. So I have two very different follow-up questions. One on caregiver engagement, which we'll come back to. But the first one, I had. I'm trying to put a timeline on it. I think over the summer or early last fall, we had Dr. Kelly Farquharson on out of Florida. And she's big on, oh God, what lab does she run? Give me two seconds and I can tell you the lab. She's actually the 2022 ASHA convention chair this year or convention co-chair, which is just really cool. But she runs a literacy lab out of her Right. And yes, her name and is talking, familiar, but I can't remember what methodology yes. she's using. Yes. She was talking all about how like the assessments that they use. And she gave very specific assessments that they use in order to diagnose like dyslexia and how like high the prevalence is speech sound disorder carrying over to dyslexia. So I'm just kind of curious, like, do y'all have what is your assessment protocol? Like, do you have like a baseline and then like before they get discharged, if they're not getting assigned grades and they're not getting assigned a grade level, do you use like a specific standardized assessment protocol in order in conjunction with the multiple diagnoses? Like Right. Okay. So when, data. A, right. when a child comes to us, we do a whole battery of testing. We do speech, we do language, we do reading. If they're right age, we do motor-free visual perception. We do visual motor integration. We do phonological awareness testing. We do visual memory, auditory memory. Can you name the tests that you use in case people are curious? I can't name them all, but I can name you some. For our TIC, we like to use the Arizona. There's a longer name for the Arizona, but I can't remember what it's called. But the Arizona, I like the Arizona because it also assesses your vowels. And so many of our children with severe speech have vowel disorders or vowel distortions. Uh, We use the self for language Mm -hmm. for those older children. We'll use like a tackle or something like that for younger children. We use the CTOP for phonological awareness. We do achievement. We use the Weschler's achievement test for looking at their academic skills course, we do. Um, we have a psychometrist who assesses ability. We usually use the Reynolds for that. I'm trying to think what else I saw in one of a report lately. The VMI, the Berry Visual Motor Integration, the MVPT, the Motor Visual or Motor Free Visual Perception Test, which is good to see if those children have some sort of handwriting and you know integration there. 
going on. And of course, different children have different tests based on their profile and based on their ages. Okay, you hit it. Folks, that's what I was aiming at. All right, we forget the pathologist part of our job title. We cannot diagnose disorders and diseases based on one standardized assessment alone. You cannot... You Yes, you cannot give the PLS-5 one, the norm. I hurt my fingers slamming on the table just a second. Oh, my God. Preach, preach. Ah, but, yes, but like, ah, really smarts. Okay, but you cannot do that because one, the validity, specificity, specificity, and sensitivity of the PLS-5 is so abysmal. We should call, demand, and beg, borrow, and plead Pearson to either renorm it or chuck it in the you-know-what bucket. Uh, just putting that out there. But- It has to be a dynamic assessment. This is where we pull in language samples. This is where we pull in a couple of different standardized assessments. It's, y'all, this is why RTI, why you push in and and, and you gather in-depth analysis. The same for those of you that are treating pediatric feeding disorder. This is why we engage in interprofessional practice because only 2 to 3% truly have behavioral feeding aversions, and that falls in the line of psychology and down the rabbit hole of ARFID. We're supposed to be using clinical swallow evaluation, instrumental swallow evaluation, seeing how they eat in different environments, and then, oh, by the way, referring out to OTPTGIENT allergist RAR. Sorry, Missy, that was a soapbox, <laughs> but it was soapbox <laughs> with a purpose. So like, ta-da! <laughs> okay, now back to the other question that I had. Caregiver, how do you support, and I know the children that you're teaching are older. They're the age that they should be going into preschool and we're exiting like routines-based interview or routines-based for like home-based environment. And you're now in the routine space. That's the public school. But like, how do you engage in caregiver carryover? Okay. So we have, we do parent training with our parents to tell, because of course, you know, the things we do are different, especially if they have other children in school, the things we do are different. You know, when we say you go home and do dictation, they're like, I don't know what that is. And so we show them how we're doing what we're doing. We're showing, we're you know giving them support on, so they can learn the Northampton symbols to help their children. The children are getting homework every day. So they're having things to do at home. And then as, you know, with the parents, we, you know, we interview with the parents, we conference with the parents and give them support. Of course, you know, as with all children, levels of support in all schools, levels of parent support are different for different children. And so, you know, some parents are more engaged, some some parents are less engaged. And then when the children go back to their local school district, that is, we meet with their district, we meet with their parents, and we talk about where do we think these children are functioning? You know, this is the grade level they're functioning in reading and math. This is their age level. These are the skills that they have. This is what the school has to offer. And then we help, you know, give our our recommendations for what does the parent, you know, need to do to help support the child when he goes back to his local school. That's awesome. That's awesome. How is it received on the school district end? We've been working with these districts for for many, many years. And, you know, our districts are, they're a great partner with us and we are able to close the gap of so many of these children. And so many of these children go back to school and they're needing fewer services. And so we've got a really good relationship with our districts because we're wanting to, you know, we're we're partners in this thing. We're partners in this team that are working with the children. And, you know, a lot of times we'll be like, okay, so what, this is what we think. And the district will say, well, well, this is what we think. And the parents will, you know, so we're really just a good little partnership with our local districts. That's nice to hear because, I mean, what, the thing that it is that I do, the school districts don't necessarily know how to support in their physical building, you know? So, like, that's kind of – my meetings tend to be a little different than your meetings. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> so I'm sure. That would be a nice way of saying that. <laughs> There's a lot of people in the room like, yes, 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 this is very true. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. So – when you guys have your discharge, one, how often do y'all like round on the, I guess I'll call them students and not patients. Do y'all round like weekly? Do you, how, what does that look like? 
the teacher in the classroom is the speech pathologist. So when the child starts with us, he gets an assessment battery of all those areas that we talked about. So we get that baseline Mm -hmm. of the standardized testing. Okay. Every single day that child's in, in class, the teacher is taking data towards his IEP goals. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the teacher's taking that data. And then, you know, we look at if there's problems or, you know, they'll come to us, you know, hey, we're having these issues. We're not making progress. What do you think? You know, that type of thing. And then every nine weeks, the parents get a progress report on their IEP goals. So the speech path will send home the progress the child's made on those IEP goals. We will have discussed is the goal you know, appropriate? Does the goal need to be modified? Do we need to change the goal? Whatever, so that we can get that child moving forward. Every year, at the end of every school year, beginning of school year for new students, at the end of every school year, so every 12 months, we do another round of standardized testing for our students. Because, of course, we want to see, is what we're doing helping? If not, we need to do something else or we need to consider an alternate placement. And then, of course, every three years, a reevaluation has to be done for the child's eligibility. But before the child... Go ahead. Sorry. Do y'all do Common Core at all or is that also in the chuck it, you know, bucket? (laughs) We follow the college and career readiness standards. So all of those goals, all of those areas that have to be addressed... We address, but again, we address them through language units and through language lessons, because I always think about the planets like a, I don't even know what, I'm not a scientist anymore, but you know, it used, when I was little, Pluto was a planet, you know, Pluto is what be, has been deplanetized or whatever you want to call it. Wait, I love astrophysics. And I read the book about by the astrophysicist who actually killed Pluto I and it's hysterical. I need and to he read talks that about. It, it's great. He talks about in the book, he goes, I've never upset so many fourth graders and received nasty like I'm letters sure. in the mail from children. <laughs> I was like, that poor son of a gun. All right. Sorry, squirrel. So, I know. But but exactly. Yes, okay. But so you think about, think about all the language that you need to understand to understand that, oh, Pluto was a planet and now it's not a planet anymore. When the children are still like pointing at me and saying, uh, and I have to say my name is not, uh, you have to say Missy. Um, uh-huh. And so we're able to add the language component to those language, le- to those science lessons, to those history and social studies lessons. And but the children aren't graded on that. They are getting more of exposure for that because we do feel that we need to give the children the speech and language and reading skills so that they are able to access that curriculum. Without those skills, they don't have any access And so that's where our goal is. And we're using the language of the science and the social studies and the history to help them get there. But that's not our end goal. Our end goal is speech language reading. I I just I'm impressed that you guys assess once a year. That's pretty dynamic in and of itself. And good God. Wait, other question. So one of my colleagues here in South Carolina was floored when I said that, like, you know, when you go into like early intervention for most places, there's not a, most companies don't have a diagnostic team, right? Like some of the larger school districts may have like a diagnostic designated member, right? But it could just be any speech pathologist, but like doing the diagnostics and doing it well, that's an art. Yes, it is. That's a craft. Yes, it is. Don't ask me to do those things. Yeah, I, I, I can't like it. You're right. I mean, we do have a psychometrist that we contract with because those ability tests, you know, our speech pass can't do those. So you said psychometrist earlier. What is a psychometrist? Okay, I'm going to give you my best guess of what a psychometrist is. <laughs> but a psychometrist, there actually is a, an, a licensure endorsement on an educator's license for psychometry where those individuals go and they learn all about testing measures and vil- validity and reliability and all of that stat stuff. And then so they are able to give specialized tests, like a, the ability test, you know, like a, the language test your speech paths can give. But some of those tests, because there are specifics of that test, that only certain individuals can give. So it's basically a testing person who has that certification in testing. I found that absolutely 
fascinating that when I was in school and it just kind of geeked me out that like different professions can't administer standardized scores, like standardized assessments. Also, like we should all know that a SLPA is not allowed to complete a diagnostic eval. They're not allowed to write their plan of cares and they can't write discharge summaries or make changes to the plan of cares, right? That is not within the SLPA scope of practice. We can't administer certain traditional like psychological assessments like that's outside of our scope of practice to administer. But are you aware of that when you're going through and you're doing your diagnostic criterion? I could see how in stressful situations, an SLP could be asked to step outside of their scope. And that's why we have to know what we can and cannot do. Right. So, we have the same battery that we give. I mean, we have a a group of tests that we give over time. And then if we've got a new test, we always research to see who can give it, who can't give it, which is why we also contract with psychometrists, because if it's something that we can't give, she can give those tests. We've only got like five or six minutes left. And I want to hold up the last minute for like, you know, fabulous 60th anniversary events. But can you tell me some of the myths and confusions that parents have come to you with that you guys have been able to like pop or enlighten through? Did they come to you with concerns of like, but I thought the DeBard association method was this. What do you got? Like, you see what I'm saying? Our, our, most of our myths and confusion have to do with the diagnoses of the children or like, oh, well, or the misinformation, I guess it's more misinformation, like, oh, well, the doctor said she was fine. Like she's five and it's not talking yet. She's not fine. A lot of our myths have to do with dyslexia as well. And that's not just parents, but you know, oh, well, that my child has dyslexia. He sees was for saw. Of course, you know, we know it's a whole lot different than that. There's a whole language-based problem with there. One of the things that we do get that we have to correct a lot is we get the call. Do you do that test for dyslexia? And I know you spoke to that earlier, Yes. but first of all, there is not a test for dyslexia. There's a battery of tests and you get a profile to see if the child meets those. What does the child look like and what strengths and weaknesses does he have? I think a lot of times our biggest misconceptions that we have around parents, maybe not parents, but maybe like the observers is what the children can do. You know, we, a lot of times people focus on what they cannot do. And I'll tell you what, one of the things that we see is we get a lot of misconception that because children don't have good oral language skills, they're not smart. And that is by absolutely no means true. You know, our children, they can have a nonverbal ability of 120 and an oral language score of a 50. Okay, that's a huge difference. But what do they look like? They look like that 50. when we know they're not. And so getting individuals to understand that, first of all, you don't talk to them like they have a 50. You talk to them like they have 120 and use appropriate language, but that these children are smart, they're capable, they need the right type of instruction and support so that they can meet their challenges. Because these children are, I mean, they're, I always think about our kids, they're fun and funny. Let me tell you, they're fun and funny. But because they are children, they're smart kiddos. They're smart. They have a lot of, a lot of skills. They have a lot of deficit areas too. But if we can teach them in the correct way, then we can make such a huge difference for them. You know, I talked a little bit about Avery too, but we have, you know, students here all the time who graduate from college, you know, they started when they were four and nonverbal and they graduated from college. And, you know, we have students, I have stories like that all the time. If we give these children a chance and teach them in the right way, then we can make such a huge difference for them. I mean, we can change their lives, change their families' lives. And that's, to me, that's like the biggest myth that we need to, to create or to debunk is to say that these children are capable. We are the ones who have to do something differently. We have to teach them in the right way. And the good news is, is we know what to do. We know how to do that. Mm-hmm. I just, I kind of want to know how many of your graduates end up going back to University of Southern Mississippi as 
college students. That would be an interesting statistic to follow. <laughs> I would like to see that too. I do. It's funny because a lot of times, you know, I've been out of the classroom for a long time since I've been in administration, but I'll still get calls and things from parents. Hey, we passed the, you know, the ninth grade algebra test or, hey, we're graduating from college. We get a lot of high school graduation announcements here from former students. And, you know, that's all like, always exciting because, you know, these are parents, the parents will come and say, you know, this is the child who they told me she would, you know, never graduate, that she would never get a job and that, you know, it's always about she would never do. Well, let's find out what she can do and let's let's help her get there. And so it's exciting. I mean, we love what we do here at the DeBard School. I mean, I've been here 20, this is my 26th year. I like to say I started when I was five <laughs> because there's no way I, um, there's no way I'm as old as I am. But we love what we do here because it makes a difference every day for these children. And, you know, that's, that's what it's all about. That's why we, that's why we all do what we do is because we're making somebody's life better. We, yes, yes. We we actually have that in our family prayer every night. Put us where you want us. Give us insight and understanding as to why we're there. Strength and stamina to do the job that you have called us to do and wisdom and endurance for the journey. Whew. That's, a, that's a good, that's a mighty big prayer. That might be the most Southern thing I've said on here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Is it, we say might can. Might, you might can do might it. Or I'm fixing to do it. That's another Southern ease there. When you said that, all I could hear was my grandma saying when I was, I'd, you know, moseying on her business and she would go, I'm like, what you doing? And she was like, cat, how does she phrase it? Cat got your tongue, mind your own business. <laughs> like that meant bugger out now. That's right. Well, Avery, when she was just learning her language, she'd say something like she'd be talking secrets with her brother and we'd say, Avery, what are you doing? She'd say, just business. Not for just yes. say not for both of y'all. So which means it's not your business. Y'all get on out. Just business, yes. not for both of y'all. So I always think about that for my Avery. Wait, now y'all have your 60th anniversary. So if somebody is listening and they want to support, how can they support the Debard School? Okay, well, one fabulous way is the DeBard School is one of the charities in the Hattiesburg Half Marathon. That will be April 2nd. I actually am a charity runner. And as my, my full honest disclaimer is I'm walking a 5K. And it's been a long time since I ran. But we have charity runners that can be supported. And all of those proceeds do come to support the DeBard School. And so we have that. We've got lots of donation opportunities on our website, on our Facebook page, those types of things. One thing, Michelle, I don't think I even mentioned at the beginning of this. You mentioned it, but I want to make sure I say this, is the DeBard School is a public school. And that means our parents do not pay tuition to attend. And so awesome. this is a service in South Mississippi that is free for these families. That's a myth I have to debunk all the time is how much does it cost? It doesn't cost anything. I mean, you already pay your tax dollars. They go to your local school district. So we are supported through the state and through the feds and through the very, very generous donations of many friends. Awesome. Okay. And y'all, you can find the DeBard School on Instagram. It's called DeBard School. They have a Facebook page. And Missy, do you know the website real quick? It's www.usm.edu backslash Dubard. Beautiful. All right. So folks, tie up your laces. You've got, let's see, today should be the 29th or the 30th of March if you're listening. So you've got just about a skinny minute to go register for a Hattiesburg 5K. And I'm sure there's time that if you want to register, you can probably um, participate virtual in some capacity. And Remember, your donations there are going to change a life, lots of lives. Missy, thank you so very much for coming on. Well, thank you. I enjoyed this so much. I enjoyed visiting with you. And get, I always love talking about the DeBard School and the DeBard Association method. And we need to make a plan to get together next time we're both at ASHA. Yes, because that was a hoot. <laughs> yes, it was. That was a fun time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, I know just the person I want to introduce you to. Huzzah. Okay. Let me switch over and everybody be sure to check us out at First Bite Podcast on Instagram, First Bite on Facebook page. We love it when you get on Apple Podcast and leave us five stars and a positive review. And as always, thanks for hanging us with here at First Bite. 
Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually as well. Here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures. All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye.